intimate relations with a ghost, literal trench warfare, and plenty of family tensions. It can only be one thing, the foundation myth of Rome. What have the Romans ever done for us? Hello and thanks for downloading. My name's Neil and I'm the host of the Ancient History Hound podcast. In case you didn't know, I'm on Twitter at Ancient Blogger and I've also got a website called ancientblogger.com. Bit of a theme going on there. And on this, you can find lots of ancient history themed content such as articles I've done, vlogs and links to my Facebook, YouTube and Instagram. In this podcast, I'm going to look at the myth of how Rome came to be founded from the time Aeneas first arrived in Italy to the highly dubious end of Romulus. I'm going to start with an overview of Livy's account of this before introducing the historians Plutarch and Dionysus and their versions. I'll pick up on the issues of dating the myth, and then it's time for me to pick out some key events of the myth for closer inspection. Trust me when I say things get very odd, and I reckon there'll be a few aspects of it you never knew existed. Then finally, I'll wrap up with a couple of themes that I see really important embedded within the myth. Right, I'll start with Livy's overview. Much like Star Wars, the story of Rome begins a long, long time ago and far, far away. Following the sack of Troy, Aeneas, who was a Trojan prince, escaped and made his way west. Finally, he landed in the territory of Laurentum, which was just down the coast from Ostia. Here, Aeneas was met by Latinus, the king of the Latins. As I'll be saying many times over in this podcast, there's usually more than one version of any mythical story, and Livy is quick off the mark to note this, as he gives two possibilities of what happened next. The first is that Aeneas and co. fought the Latins, and Latinus, and was victorious. The beaten king then allied with him by giving Aeneas the hand of Lavinia, his daughter. The second option Livy mentioned is far nicer and has got something of the Odyssey about it. The king approached Aeneas and asked him to recount who he was and how he got here. After hearing the story, the king is so impressed that he allies with him and Lavinia is given as a bride. The group then potter off and found a settlement which Aeneas lames Lavinium after his bride, which is a nice touch. The married couple soon experience the pitter-patter of tiny feet when Ascanius is born to them. Though any ideas of a peaceful life are shaken when Turnus, a prince of the Rutuli tribe, declares war on both Trojans and the Latins. Livy concluded that this was due to the political fallout of Aeneas marrying Lavinia, as Turnus was initially betrothed to her. Turnus is defeated by Aeneas and so heads to an Etruscan king called Mezentius, where he is received and backed. Etruria was a region to the north of Rome, sort of modern-day Tuscany. It was by no means a unified body, but a collection of cities, a bit like ancient Greece. Back to Aeneas, but only for a short time, as the second battle against Turnus and the Etruscans was a victory for Aeneas, but one he prayed a high price for as he died in it. Ascanius was too young to rule, and Lavinia stepped in to act as a region, though by the time he came of age, the settlement of Lavinium had grown, and following the footsteps of his father, Ascanius left to found a new settlement called Alba Longa. At this point in his narrative, Livy goes a bit Tolkien, as he retells this with the generations of kings who followed Ascanius. And this is because there are a few centuries to cover between the sack of Troy and thus when Aeneas turned up, and the traditional date of Rome's foundation in 753 BCE. Ascanius was followed by Aeneas Silvus, 
the surname or cognomen here means born in the woods, and this became one which the kings of Alba kept. Next up was Latinus, presumably named after his ancestor. Then came Alba, Attis, Capis, Capetus, and Tiberinus. His fame was to die crossing a river, previously called the Albula, which took his name and was called the Tiber. After Tiberinus, there was Agrippa, and then Romulus Silvus, but no, not that Romulus, as this one was killed by lightning. Then came Aventius, who was buried on a hill which took his name. Procus succeeded him, and he had two sons, Numitor and Emulius. Numitor was the eldest of the two, and so was next in line to rule. However, Amulius drove him out and seized power. To add injury to insult, he killed the sons of Numitor and made his daughter Rhea into a priestess. The aim of this was to prevent Rhea having children. Livy referred to her as a vestal virgin, and these were bound by a vow of chastity. This very social form of contraception wasn't particularly effective, and Rhea soon fell pregnant with twins, the father being Mars, god of war. Livy raised the proverbial eyebrow on this one, and he commented that this may not have been the case, and instead it was a bit of a ruse to excuse Rhea's condition. And this is a good example of Livy not being afraid to call out aspects of the myth which he's just not buying into. The fate of Rhea and her twin sons is not particularly anything you'd be surprised by. She's imprisoned, and the twins are left by the Tiber, which was flooding at the time. The practice of infanticide was common in antiquity. I mentioned it in my podcast on Spartan women, but it was a horrible part of both Greek and Roman culture. However, in this instance, they were both saved in part by the receding waters and the appearance of a she-wolf who nursed and suckled the pair. This Disney-esque scene was happened upon by Faustulus, a shepherd, and he took the boys into his hut, where they were looked after by himself and his wife Laurentia. Again, though, Livy chimes in and is quick to interject and notes that there may be some confusion here, because the Latin for she-wolf was also a nickname for prostitutes, so it's possible that Laurentia was a local sex worker. If this was a film, we'd now have our first montage. Picture Romulus and Remus growing into young men by engaging in manly tasks in and around the farm, including a comic moment or two. As they grew older, the twins started to pursue a Robin Hood-style existence by taking on the local bandits and robbers of the area and sharing the spoils. Eventually, Remus was caught by the bandits and handed to Numitor, and the result was Numitor's eventual realisation of who Remus was. In tandem with this, Faustulus tells Romulus who he really was. It's a condensed version of the recognition scene, which is common particularly in Greek myth. The twins manage to team up and with some shepherds ambush Amulius and kill him. Numitor then emerges and explains what's happened to the populace, including what crimes Amulius had committed. So it's all neatly tied up. But this means that Numitor was now in charge of Alba, leaving the twins with little to do. As ever, a sudden surge of wanderlust appears, and the two leave to found a new city on the spot where they'd been left to drown, which I suppose is a bit macabre, but their choice. The two brothers soon quarrel over who should be in charge, and as they were twins, there wasn't really the option of it being the eldest. Instead, Romulus heads to the Palatine Hill, and Remus the Avatine. The method of deciding who would take charge required auspices, that is to say, a divine sign. The sign Remus received was six vultures, but Romulus saw twelve, and was thus given command. It's possibly the earliest fallout involving a tweet, as relations between the two brothers got worse, and this led to Remus being killed by Romulus. You're possibly more familiar with the death as a result of Romulus hitting Remus with a spade or a shovel. 
Yet Livy also wrote that Remus died as a result of a clash of his supporters and those of Romulus, and this invites us to consider whether there had been rival parties and therefore dual leadership in the lead-up to this event. With Romulus solely in charge, he became our first king of the newly founded Rome. His first two acts involved fortifying the Palatine Hill and making a sacrifice, and Livy noted that this was in the Greek style. This is an important aspect which I'll come to right at the end. Romulus' next act was to embrace the foreign element further. He made Rome an asylum for anyone looking for a fresh start, and so slaves, freeborn men and exiles and all sorts joined this fledgling city. We come to another cornerstone of the foundation myth, the rape of the Sabine women. Initially, Romulus had contacted the nearby tribes and asked for the right to intermarry with their women, but was refused. The abduction of women would take place at a festival arranged by Romulus, who invited the nearby tribes to join them. At a signal, the Roman men seized the women who had attended and dragged them off. This had obvious consequences. The other tribes whose women had also been taken responded by small raids, but ultimately were defeated by Romulus. The Sabines, however, were a different affair, and Livy marked them down as far, far more dangerous. Their king, Titus Tatius, which sounds a bit like a Marvel supervillain, was successful in taking the Roman citadel. The forces of Rome and the Sabines slugged it out in what is now the Forum. It was as if they were fighting to a standstill, but the battle was interrupted by the Sabine women who ran between the forces and pleaded that they should stop fighting. This was successful, and the Sabines were absorbed into Rome. Tatius now ruled along with Romulus, which I suppose made him the unofficial second king of Rome. And Livy wrote that Tatius was murdered at a riot some time later. He also added that Romulus wasn't that bothered when he found out, and I'm sure that someone capable of killing his own brother rather than share power with him would certainly never consider offing a king he'd been forced to share power with. Romulus then engaged successfully in military actions against rival tribes, he also focused on internal affairs. Romulus created the Senate, composed of 100 men, and he also brought about the curule chair, lictors, and the toga with the purple stripe, though Livy reckoned these were originally Etruscan. The end of Romulus was every bit as bizarre as his upbringing. He was apparently reviewing troops near the Campus Martius when a storm picked up. Livy wrote that a storm cloud surrounded him, and when it cleared, he was gone. Livy wasn't exactly sold on this. There's more than a hint that something nasty happened, but fear not, I'll be picking up on this later as well. Livy's account ticks many of the boxes you'd expect concerning the Romulus and Remus myth. Twins born to Mars? Check. Involvement of the she-wolf? Check. Subsequent survival and eventual revenge? Check. And then, of course, the famous squabble and Remus meeting his end? Check. But there are other boxes you can tick. Livy didn't just simply reel off a single account of events. At several points he wrote alternatives, and if you tick these, you get a very different myth. You could have a pair of twins exposed, following a political fallout whose father wasn't a god, and a shepherd found the twins and passed them to a local prostitute, who he's married to. The pair avenged their uncle before co-founding an unnamed city, and a power struggle ensues when one is killed in a battle between them. Romulus then assumes full power and names the city after himself. Livy's description of the myth and the alternatives he fastens within it has the effect of making the reader question the established form. Indeed, you can argue that there isn't really much of an established or normalised version here. And if he was the only person doing this, I could pass it off as just Livy being Livy. But he's not. There were two other historians who handled the myth and whose writings have survived. Unlike Livy, they're both Greeks. Dionysus of Halicarnassus and Plutarch. 
you've probably heard of Plutarch. He wrote about the lives of famous figures from history and did so in the first century AD. Dionysus of Halicarnassus, or as I'll call him Dionysus, was writing in the first century BCE in Rome and became quite an established figure in the early rule of Augustus. Livy wrote in a similar period to Dionysus. In the context of timelines, the three hugged that 1st century BCE and 1st century AD period, and before I go any further, this needs to be discussed. I'll start by asking you a question. When do you think the earliest solid or surviving piece of evidence for the Romulus and Remus myth dates to? One possibility is an Etruscan mirror which dates to 350-325 BCE, and it features a pair of twins on the back with a wolf. Or does it? For those who disagree that this relates to the myth, they point out that the wolf isn't very clear, and in fact might not even be a wolf. Depictions of twins are also common, and not always Romulus and Remus. Just to throw a bit more confusion into it all, there's a figure of Mercury nearby. As such, if it does reference the myth, it's one involving a deity we've got no record of. If we ignore the mirror, we move to the 3rd century BCE, where Livy mentioned a statue of the twins and the wolf in the Forum, which was set up in 296 BCE. If you're hoping a coin will save the day, sorry to say, that the earliest Roman coin depicting the twins and the wolf dates to 270 BCE. Plutarch, Livy and Dionysus were using earlier sources, yet here we meet a familiar pattern. Plutarch cites Diocles of Papyrethus and Fabius Pictor. Of these, Diocles is the earliest, but dates to the period roughly between the mirror and Livy's statue. Dionysus gives us some hope when writing that Hieronymus of Cardia was the first to touch upon Rome, except Hieronymus was a contemporary of Alexander the Great, which places him in the period the mirror dates to as well. There isn't a surviving piece of substantial evidence prior to 350 BCE, and that's assuming I take the mirror as definite proof. The obvious question is, why? Perhaps the best line of argument is that Rome started to firm up and sharpen the foundation myth of their city either late 4th century BCE or in the 3rd century BCE. They started drawing upon possible early accounts and stories and aligning them with their cultural norms of the time. Perhaps there were two initial myths, one involving Aeneas and one involving Romulus. The solution was to combine both, which, as I'm sure you've seen, doesn't always sink particularly well, as you have that big gap of time between the two. This might be why Rome's name doesn't derive from Romulus, i.e. Romulus didn't give Rome its name. Plutarch states this from the outset. He's not really sure how Rome came to be named and offers a number of candidates. These include Romanus, a son of Odysseus and Circe, and Roma, a woman who was either Aeneas's wife or a member of his group. Of course, having Aeneas arrive and found Rome within a few generations would make the Romulus myth obsolete. I should also add that both Livy and Dionysus are more certain that Romulus named Rome, so perhaps I should just leave it there. But I find the involvement of Aeneas and Romulus just a tad strange. It, it feels a bit clunky. Right at the beginning of this podcast, I said I was going to have a look in more detail at certain sections of the myth using the three historians we now have. I'll start with that period between Aeneas and Romulus. Following the death of Aeneas's son Ascanius, Livy gave an exhaustive list of Alban kings. Dionysus also had a list, but don't worry, I'm not going to go through it all. I will say, though, that he mentioned Tiberinus, although he added the detail that his body was carried away by the river following a battle next to it, which is why it took his name. But far more interesting is the comment given to Aloysius, who was described as a tyrant. The king built a contraption which mimicked lightning and thunder, which he used to scare his citizens, 
but he was eventually drowned as divine punishment. Sadly, there isn't much more about this, which is a huge shame. In any case, I'll roll forward to the beginning of the myth of Romulus and Remus. As mentioned, there was a fair amount of debate as to who the daddy was. Livy wasn't keen on giving another individual or deity. He just thinks that the notion of a deity was a step too far. Not so for Plutarch, who gives several candidates, not only as father, but as parents. He wrote that Romulus was actually the son of Aeneas and Dexithea, which I think is a great name, Roma and Telemachus, yes, that Telemachus, and also Amelia and Mars. Dionysus sets the bar a bit lower when he commented that others had said the father was Uncle Amulius and that he dressed in armour as a disguise. So just imagine finding out your uncle was actually your father and also into role play, or perhaps don't. It's Plutarch, though, who steals the day in the implausible parents' competition as he recounted a tale which involved a handmaiden of a king and a phantom phallus. The name of the king was Tarketius, and he was king of Alba. One day, as he went about his kingly business, a phantom phallus arose from the hearth. I'm unsure if this meant it was also a fiery phantom phallus. A nearby oracle suggested a course of action. I think it's fair to say that oracles in antiquity weren't exactly mainstream in their advice, though in this instance, what mainstream advice could you really give? The advice doled out was that a virgin needed to have intercourse with a phallus. I suppose this makes sense. After all, what else would a ghost phallus be looking for? Cozy fireside chats? Probably not. The king reasoned that this should fall to his daughter, particularly as the child born from such a union would possess great strength. For whatever reason, and by that I mean every reason you might have for not wanting to have sex with a ghost phallus which was possibly on fire, his daughter sent a handmaiden to do the deed. When he learnt of the deception, Tarketius was fuming, and when the twins were born as a result, he ordered them to be exposed. Now, as a side note, this tale is similar to the one which concerned the parentage of Servius Tullus, the sixth king of Rome. It's slightly different, as the ghost phallus was sometimes just a spark from the hearth which landed in his mother's lap and made her pregnant. The idea of Mars as the defined parent of Romulus and Remus is therefore by no means a given. One possible conclusion to all this speculation is that it didn't really matter, which itself sounds quite controversial. One argument I read went into some detail about how Romulus and Remus moved between kinship groups, which were based on the mother, not the father. The first was obviously their mother, and then, as I mentioned, Laurentia. The suspicion with many myths is that references to early practices and norms are sanded down as they are retold and repackaged for different generations. This argument posited that these instances hinted at a period where succession went through the maternal line, and it's certainly an interesting concept. However, I want to move to my next area of interest, which is possibly the cornerstone of the whole Romulus and Remus myth, that is, the famous falling out and death of Remus. Thematically, this continues the trend you may have noticed, whereby close family members are just about as untrustworthy and violent to each other as you could possibly be. Just to recap, we've had nepoticide, where an uncle kills his nephew, and avunculicide, where a nephew kills his uncle. And into this, we're going to toss in some good old-fashioned fratricide. The story we're most used to has Remus mocking a trench his brother was digging around the Palatine Hill. Romulus retorts with that favourite Tom and Jerry routine, a shovel to the face. But it does seem yet another bizarre detail. Why was Romulus so offended? And what was Remus doing exactly? For what it's worth, I see a fair amount of symbolism at play here. The walls of Rome were sacred spaces. 
The word pomerium relates to the space either side of the walls, which were considered sacred, and which marked out a section of the city which was bound by certain laws. For example, you couldn't carry weapons within the pomerium in Rome. I'm unsure if the ditch itself was the pomerium, as it's normally associated with a line ploughed by Romulus after the walls were built, and thus after the death of Remus. However, I think we can be comfortable with the notion that the walls, and therefore the foundations, had some symbolic and perhaps religious importance. Jumping and mocking them wasn't something to be taken lightly. Livy's primary account of the death of Remus results from an altercation between the followers of either twin. That is to say, this occurred out of political rivalry. To extend this further, it's possible to argue that the naming of Rome and bird spotting was a way of finally determining who would lead the city. Romulus's win was challenged, which isn't surprising it's inferred in other accounts that he cheated. The outcome was a sort of mini-civil war between the twins, and Remus died during this. Just to indulge this further, perhaps Remus attempted to take the Palatine and was killed in the attempt as he crossed the partially built walls or ditch. Both Plutarch and Dionysus refer to a battle being fought between the two. Plutarch even mentions Faustilus, the shepherd who found them, being killed in it. The version where Remus leaps over the ditches as an insult is in fact given by Livy as an alternative, but this wasn't unique. Greek myth had two such accounts. In Boeotia, King Poimenandros had his walls insulted by Polycritus. The king picked up a large boulder and lobbed it at the critic, only to miss and kill his son. Another king, Oenus, killed his son, Toxaeus, for leaping over the ditch he'd dug round Caledon. I think that even if it was the leaping option, we can understand the weight and gravity of it. No pun intended. It was a challenge to Romulus and the sanctity of the settlement he was building on the Palatine. I would like to say I'm going to move to cheerier climes, but sadly, the next event I want to look at is shorn of anything remotely agreeable. It's the rape of the Sabine women. The event occurred at a festival held by Romulus after he'd pleaded to the local tribes for marriage permissions. And it's worth understanding why Romulus might have been refused by the local tribes. For a start, there was the fact that Rome was a rival, so why exactly would you help a rival city that had been expanding and might end up competing with your own? Consider also that some of the men in Rome may have been those of the tribe who'd absconded or been exiled from it. By allowing them to marry back into your tribe, you might be in danger of causing a negative reaction, possibly leading to your leadership being undermined or challenged. Dionysus frames the sorry episode with about as much positive spin as he can muster. In his account, Romulus consulted Numitor, the newly created senate, about his plan, and he even made a sacrifice ahead of it. It feels as if he wanted to ensure everyone, even the gods, were in on this act, so no one could blame him retrospectively. The irony is that by doing all of this, what was a secret plan risked being thrown into the open and known to all? Yet, I suspect Dionysus was happy to dent his narrative just to make Romulus look as faultless as possible. The consensus amongst the three historians was that the women to be abducted would be unmarried maidens, and the exact number taken differs in each account. Dionysus counted 683 maidens, Plutarch wrote the far smaller number of 30, and also includes numbers given by other figures. Valerius Antius had apparently given 527, and Juba had also given a number of 683. There's obviously quite a difference here, and I suppose, well, it's just speculation. However, Plutarch did include a comment about the incident and how it became embodied into the customs of Rome, in that a bride was carried across the threshold by the groom. And I think that's still a tradition today, but I have no idea whether or not it's linked back to the Roman tradition and that if you know, perhaps you can tweet me. I should also acknowledge this act, or the symbolism of capture in marriage. 
It was certainly evident in Greek marriage, and if you listen to my podcast on Spartan women, I spoke about the marriage ceremony in part two, and one such ritual involved women being grabbed by men in a dark room at random. The incident involving the Sabine women can also be used to inform the earlier points I made concerning when the myth of Rome's foundation was shaped. In the 290s BCE, Rome absorbed the Sabines and their lands, and it's possible to point to the addition of this myth as being something used to explain how the Sabines had been accommodated into Rome, and the technique was to retrospectively place it deep in Rome's past. Perhaps in the 3rd century BCE, it was folded into the myth. I can't say for sure, but it's certainly a possibility. Thus far, Romulus doesn't come across particularly well, but worry not, because I know what will cheer you up, hearing about how he died. Romulus's death is party to the sort of random stories and contradicted accounts we have become used to and are grateful for. We'll start with the first, less believable option, namely that Romulus was out one day and a storm engulfed him and he was taken to heaven. On the likely scale of things, it seems about as believable as twin babies being found by a wolf and reared. The more likely story is heavily hinted at by the three historians, namely that Romulus was killed by the senators. Livy mentioned just prior to the death that Romulus was loved more by the people than the Senate. Dionysus is a bit more detailed. As well as given a range of possibilities, he gives prominence to a fallout with the Senate as Romulus was acting as a bit of a tyrant and not behaving well. Given that he killed his brother, a king he'd held rule with and had organised a mass kidnapping, he might not need to sit down to digest that kind of insight. Plutarch agrees with Dionysus and suspected that it was because Romulus had defied the Senate's wishes over land allocation, a not unfamiliar topic in the late Republic and early Imperial period. This presented the newly founded Rome with a huge challenge, and thankfully both Livy and Plutarch have Julius Proculus to save the day and avoid any internal consequence. Julius was a noted noble and apparently trusted. It was to him that Romulus appeared following his disappearance. Romulus assured Julius he was fine and had merely been taken to heaven. Julius duly recounted this to the people and the Senate, which seems to have had the desired effect of soothing any discontent. I wonder as an aside if this led to any kind of random sightings of him afterwards, in the same way people used to see Elvis everywhere, particularly at airports, and apparently even in the background in a scene from Home Alone. The people of Rome seemed to accept this, though I suppose, what choice did they have? If you enter the bubble of the myth, you have the option of rioting and perhaps some form of civil war, but why would you risk this, especially given the rival tribes near Rome, who would happily pounce on a weakened city? The three historians all fostered the sense that the people of Rome weren't particularly happy, and that though they accepted the story, they didn't much believe it. Luckily, Plutarch reported an anecdote which gives us a window into how contemporary Romans viewed the myth. In his book on Pompey, Plutarch recalled a moment where the famous general was told that if he tried to emulate Romulus, he would end up like him. The threat can be understood as either disappearing or being cut to pieces by the Senate, which is one version of Romulus's death. Did this mean then that the death of Romulus was a sort of byword for political assassinations? What is crucial is that this anecdote had to resonate with its readers, and if it generally did occur, it's proof that it was a recognised cultural reference. Plutarch's account of the death of Romulus also mentioned an eclipse, and this set my historical juices going. I know that this reference might be a later invention, celestial events after all, often associated with important births and deaths, but I took the bait and visited the NASA website which stores historical eclipses. And if you're interested in this sort of thing, I did an article on my ancientblogger.com website in which I investigate some of the famous eclipses of antiquity. Dionysus and Plutarch 
both gave Romulus's reign of about 38 years, which means I wanted to find an eclipse around 716 BCE, which could be visible from Rome. I did find one which occurred in 710 BCE. It started at 8.41 in the morning and lasted until 11 in the morning. I should add that this was the total time of the eclipse, not the period of totality where it's dark. And it's plausible that an earlier death of Romulus myth had an eclipse associated with it. Obviously, what makes this even more tenuous is there's some 400 years between the foundation of Rome and any real reference to the myth of its foundation. And with that last, if not somewhat enjoyable tangent, I want to sum up and conclude on two main themes. The first isn't surprising, it's violence. Killings, brutality and conflict and general nastiness is in place the moment Aeneas lands. It's both internal and external. As much of the time, family members are happily disposing of each other. Plutarch, Dionysus and Livy might have understood this theme within the events of their lifetimes. The 1st century BCE and parts of the 1st century AD involved violent struggles between political classes and the wider people of Rome. Here then is a myth which resonates well. Romulus fighting Remus is echoed in the civil wars of Rome where, metaphorically, brothers fought brothers, and perhaps literally they did so as well. A foundation myth which delivers a period of glory after these struggles maps well and could be used politically. In a way, Rome was destined to always be a place where internal struggles were violent and brutal. Did the myth then somehow act as a valve for this and some way normalise it? I don't know. But surely it can't be coincidental for Rome to have formed a myth about itself which involves heightened political violence around the same time when heightened political violence was a regular occurrence. The second theme sits in stark contrast to this. Rome was a place which welcomed and encouraged foreigners. Aeneas is the obvious starter in this regard. He is, after all, a man fleeing Troy and wanting a new life. He's a refugee. Romulus founded a city and imported Etruscan and Greek influences. In that sense, it incorporated both new peoples and existing cultures. Military successes are reported, as you would expect, but often the detail following informs of more people and lands being added into the city. It's perhaps easy to see how unusual this type of foundation myth is by placing it next to some Greek ones. Athens was fiercely proud that its people literally sprang from the earth, and the term for this is autochthonic. Several Greek peoples and cities claim this type of origin. In a wonderful piece of foundation myth rivalry and snidiness, Livy commented that many of those who claimed to be born from the soil were in fact recruited into new cities in the same way that Romulus had. Much like how the theme of violence had traction with the times of Plutarch, Livy and Dionysus, the idea of Rome being somewhere you could go and start anew wasn't lost. In their recent times, people had come to make their names at Rome from outside of it. The likes of Cicero, Marius and Pompey weren't born in Rome. In the imperial period, the emperors Claudius, Trajan and Hadrian were born far from it. Mixing the new with the old wasn't always that easy though. Julius Caesar caused uproar when he promoted a couple of Gauls to the Senate and of course it's very easy to associate Rome with that sort of snobbery and elitism. It's undoubtedly a fascinating myth, one I see as inherently interesting because all the elements within it that have been folded in don't quite line up just right and these can be looked into and considered. It's the faults, it's the things that don't quite add up which make it so interesting. And hey, it also had a ghost phallus, which in many ways is reason enough to do an episode in it on its own. And on that cheery point, I think I'll leave it. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Thanks again for listening. And if you're doing so via iTunes, please leave a review. I just need a few more and I might get featured on a search engine and that kind of thing. It really helps this podcast get some visibility. If you want to say hi, give feedback on this episode or anything relating to ancient history, pop by Twitter. I'm at ancient blogger or visit my 
ancientblogger.com website for other stuff. Till next time, keep safe and stay well.